Hiring? With Indeed, your search is over. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. plus on their feet. Nobody's left to beat the traffic tonight, I guarantee you. Mark gets the sign. The wind and the pitch. Here it is. Swung. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes! 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 Now get ready, this is the Platinum Sombrero Podcast with your hosts, Dylan Short and Adam Doc Herbert. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Platinum Sombrero brought to you by Armchair Media and our friends at MyBookie. MyBookie.ag, the number one sports book online in the world. You guys already know the whole spiel, but I'm going to do it again anyway, just because I really do love the promos that they're giving everybody. As I've mentioned, I don't know, probably a thousand times with this point, actually, probably about 95 times by this point, MyBookie.ag does give... TPS listeners, a 100% deposit match up to $1,000 just for signing up the first time. When you make that initial deposit, if you deposit, say, $50 into your account, they're going to give you another $50, and you're going to be able to go play with $100. You're going to be able to make more money. And if you're a guy that likes to bet prop bets, you're in luck because MyBookie.ag has all of the prop bets, more than anybody else in the business. MyBookie.ag, always up to date. Customer service is second to none. If you're looking for a good line, I can promise you it will be on my bookie, whether it's football, baseball, basketball, hockey, boxing, whatever the sport, mybookie.ag has you covered. And if you use our promo code armchair, like I mentioned earlier, they're going to give you a 100% deposit match up to $1,000. Mybookie.ag, play, win, have a great time. All right, so I know what you guys are all waiting for. You guys are all waiting for me and Doc to tell you everything about Josh Donaldson, and we will. Unfortunately, Doc, I don't think we have much in the way of Josh Donaldson to actually uh, tell everybody. We are recording on Thursday night. We waited as long as we possibly could because we it just felt all week like this is it. This is going to be when Josh Donaldson finally resigns, and you know everybody's going to be super pumped and joyous and everything. And here we are, just sitting, still, still waiting. Um, the, with the holiday, you know, it kind of threw a wrench in the in the the free agent market, and everything was 
was rolling out nice and easy and it looked like it was going to be a no-nonsense free agent class. And well, this is only nonsense because we're the ones who are being forced to wait now. So it still feels like it's going to be relatively soon. We're just not there yet. So sorry, guys, you're going to have to listen to episode 98 as well. I mean, it is 7.15 currently. Uh, check back with us at about 9.30. And if if our past history is any sort of example, this is the day that Donaldson will sign right after we finish recording. And if that's the case, that'll be fine, too. You're all yeah. welcome. <laughs> You're all <Yeah>. welcome. <laughs> but on, on a more serious note, there's a lot of chatter coming on, going around about Donaldson. Uh, you had the uh, at Atlanta Braves insider, which I can't figure out if that actually was Luke Jackson playing a prank on everybody or just a master troll who got a lot of people desperate for Donaldson news to believe in it. Um, but that signing did not happen when we all thought it would. Uh, you've got other guys like Dan Clark swearing that it's a, that the Braves have offered four years and the 110 million that Donaldson has been asking for. Uh, I have some knowledge a little bit uh, from a couple different people here, but I can't, I'm not going to tell you exactly what I've been told from them. Uh, I will tell you that if the Braves had offered four years and 110, he would have already signed. Uh, if that's the exact deal that Donaldson was looking for and somebody offered him the exact deal, it would have, he would have already signed. Uh, I feel pretty confident in saying we can pretty much guess what people have offered just by looking at what they offer other people. So with Washington, they've probably got a four-year on the table. But Doc, what is the one thing Washington likes to do more than anything else when dealing with free agents? Third money. So... I think we can take a, a hefty guess that as they offered Rendon, as they offered Bryce Harper, as they offered Steven Strasburg, as they've offered Patrick Corbin, as they've offered everybody else in free agency, they offered him deferred money in this deal. And Donaldson, more than likely, because he's not an idiot, is looking to get his money up front. Doesn't want to be Bobby Bonilla and make $1 million every year for like 50 years. Uh, I think uh, if we go to Minnesota... I know that the views are pessimistic in Minnesota. I know uh, my cohort at the Locked On Minnesota page has said that Minnesota is out on Donaldson. I haven't seen it reported officially as of yet, but that does seem to be that does seem to be the thought process. It does seem to be between Washington and Atlanta more than anything right now. Uh, maybe L.A. is sitting out there waiting, but judging by what L.A. has done the last few seasons giving a big contract to somebody like Josh Donaldson wouldn't really fit their, their MO either. So when you're looking at the Braves, which is all we have left at this point, Alex has, Alex has a structure that he's comfortable with. And it's the same type of structure he offers just about everybody. And doc, what would that structure be? Short contracts, a uh, high average annual value. Right. So you're looking and Alex is always very conscious of, of the years on his on his deals, he cares a lot more about years than he cares about annual salary. I know we talked about the Charlie Culberson thing earlier, uh, but to my knowledge, I don't know that the Braves have offered anyone a four-year contract aside from Albies and Acuna, uh, and really, what is that, three years outside of arbitration for both of those guys? I think it's a three-year deal aside from their arbitration years for both, except for Acuna, which might be four or five, if I'm not mistaken. Sounds right. I can't. I cannot remember the structure of how both of those are put together. Like when the options kick in. For for the life of me, I I can't seem to remember. I think Acuna's is the largest or the longest deal aside from arbitration years. But even with those, you can sub, you can subtract the three arbitration years. Uh, Alex has a a very a very very easy to tell mo. He doesn't like to pay guys late into their careers. He doesn't like 
to give multiple years to to mid and late thirties types of guys because they do tend to be albatross contracts. Uh, and Alex, who has stuck to his guns when it came to Bryce Harper and Manny Machado, uh, Garrett Cole, Steven Strasburg, I don't see him changing that mo for Josh Donaldson. I don't know. Maybe I'm in. Maybe I'm in the minority here, but I do not see him changing his GM structure for one player. Well, even for all of the different players that that they were in on where they were offering deals like that, because they, they did offer that deal to Manny Machado and, and they, they did offer a similar deal. That deal, by the way, being that the deal to Manny Machado being three years and 90 right with, with a, uh, with an option on top of that. So, you know, they were in it, but I mean, Manny wound up getting 10 years and 300 million from a GM who was much more, cavalier and much more you know trying to just kick walls down anthopolis there's a method behind his madness and the difference is you know when they're offering that to bryce harper and manny machado those guys are 26 uh garrett cole who you know they were never going to get garrett cole but garrett cole's 29 you would feel better about giving those types of contracts to the younger guys now donaldson's 34 he's very healthy for somebody who's 34 don't let somebody tell you he's got some lengthy injury history i don't know where that keeps coming from he missed a lot of 2018 that was one year and and some of 2017 too but you saw him last year he's fine he's he's back reunited with the team that helped um like the training staff that helped keep him on the field while he was in toronto and be one of the best players in all of baseball so you can't really manipulate this too much without trying to get too cute and kind of paint yourself into a corner. Because if you try and get too cute and you, you think that, Oh, he'll take our offer over anybody else's um, just because we have this camaraderie. Well, I mean, the the worst thing you can do is get too comfortable. And the next thing you know, the Phillies show up and they're like, Hey, we'll give you a five years and 125 because we're just oozing money. And you, you know, you wind up screwing yourself out of have a third baseman and you wind up losing him to somebody inside the division. So they do have to be careful. I think that they could probably afford to um, offer him maybe a little bit less than somebody like the twins could just because there is some camaraderie there, but not much. You're not, he's not going to take like a massive discount just to come back here. I mean, he's been very clear. He's trying to get paid and he should, you know, he he's doing everything that he's, he's supposed to be doing. I just, I'm just getting antsy because if he does pivot and go somewhere else, then time is running out to pick up the pieces somewhere else. So, you know, we're all in this boat together. And, you know, I think um, Josh is probably very sick of everybody tweeting at him every single day, telling him to sign and people saying, you know, if you really wanted to sign, he would have already signed by now. Like, it... yeah, can we, can we put a pin in that, by the way, the amount of people that are talking about Josh in a negative light as if he has no loyalty to the Braves. Uh, he's played for Atlanta for one season. Why should he have more loyalty to the Braves than he had to the Blue Jays or the Athletics? No, that's that's a very good point. That is a very good point. So, I mean, the Braves didn't draft Josh. We weren't the ones that that got him paid. We weren't the ones that got him anything. We gave him $23 million for a season. Yes, that's the largest one-year contract in Major League history, but that... <laughs> That doesn't explain the point because usually players that are worth twenty three to twenty five million dollars aren't settling for one year deals. And there's almost this kind of air. I was thinking about this earlier today. Like the eventually the dam is going to break, and I think that this is going to be the move that causes that to happen. Like all you know, whoever winds up being the the runner up in the JD sweepstakes, then they pivot to the Arenados and the Bryants, and um, or maybe try and fill that hole with. Ozuna, Cassianos, whatever. But like because of that, I'm looking at this going, 
dude, you're, you're just completely holding up free agency right now. You're holding everything hostage. Everything was moving fine. And now here's Donaldson over here like, nope, sorry, everybody's going to have to wait for me. So hopefully it'll be done soon. I mean, there's there's some other uh, Braves roster stuff on the horizon that, that we can we can certainly take a look at for guys that we know are going to be around for next year. But uh, I, I still go back and forth on whether or not I think he's coming back here or not. I still, I still can't decide. Ultimately, I mean, I, I would love, I would love for him to be back here. And for all the time we spent talking about Arenado and Brian, it's mainly just, it's just contingency discussions, I hope, but we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully soon. I would love to have to do an emergency pod this weekend. That would be awesome. And I, I, I I'm with you. I can't seem to figure out if the longer it's taking, if it's more likely he's coming back or if it's more likely, more likely he's leaving. Uh, I really do believe that he hasn't been offered the contract that he wants. I don't think the Braves have given him four guaranteed years. If I were to hang a guess, it's three years with a fourth-year option, and that option is most likely not going to be picked up. I, I think that's, pr- in my mind, that's, that's most likely what it is. And this is, aside from whatever else anybody is telling anybody, I think that the Braves have offered, I don't know that they've offered more than three years to any actual free agent. And I think that's, I think that's something that as long as Alex is here in Atlanta, I don't think that's going to change. I think he's very leery of getting burned on the back end of deals. Um, but it does raise an interesting question because last year, Doc, you and I were both on the same page that last year free agency was a massive, massive disappointment for the Braves. Aside from Donaldson and aside from the nostalgia of Brian McCann, uh, I think we can both agree that it was pretty much a failure of an offseason, or at least fell very short of expectations. Uh, I'm kind of stuck on this year's. So let me give you two scenarios, and you tell me how you feel about them, okay? Okay, let's go. All right, scenario number one, the Braves land Josh Donaldson and nothing else. So they go into the season with the same offense plus Travis Darno in a totally revamped bullpen. Uh, but they don't add an outfield to replace Marcakis and Duvall. Uh, they don't really clarify any of that. They don't. They don't make any trades with any of their minor league. Their any of their minor league surplus. How do you feel about the offseason? Honestly, I feel pretty good. I do because, and we have a, a listener mailbag question that we're going to get to in the in the second half that kind of gets in a little bit of this too. Like when I look at the 2019 Braves. I see a team that had just preposterous amounts of potential and wound up just getting a couple of bad breaks. And, you know, this team, even though they didn't, they were good enough to go to the World Series. Even with a bullpen that sucked for two-thirds of the season, even from Mike Fultonavich finding himself in AAA, even having to DFA Kevin Gossman, even with Josh Donaldson not having performed for the first two months of the season, even for Freddie Freeman not performing for the last month of the season and in the playoffs— you know, it sucks that we have the memories of it that we have, the way that it ended and everything, but it's easy to look at Game 5 and say, oh, this team sucked. They did not. This was a great team. So bringing back this this squad, like, okay, say you're going to lose a little bit of production from Josh Donaldson because he because he's going to be a year older. This You could still have Ozzie Albies step up and make – make that up, have Ronald Acuna, instead of having a five-war season, he has a six-and-a-half-war season coming into his next year. So I think that Darno is an upgrade over, or uh, Darno and Flowers is an upgrade over McCann and Flowers, because I think Darno is going to wind up starting more. Um, I think the bullpen is going to wind up being much better because of the work that they did. You know, we saw Chris Martin. He was on, 
He was in the good version of the bullpen that showed up in the second half of last year, but that version, coupled with having Darren O'Day actually being here and having Will Smith being here, that's going to eliminate a lot of the nonsense that came with the early part of the of the season. So I honestly think that if you bring back, if you roll with that roster, you put Josh Donaldson back on this roster and you roll into it, I think that's a team that can win the division again and I think can go deeper into the playoffs because there will be some natural development from these guys. Like from the younger guys, your Sorokas and your Freeds and everybody. I really think there will be. So um, I don't know if the if it's the answer you were looking for, but yeah, I probably would be kind of happy with uh, with what they've done. It's just been a minute since they've done anything, so it seems like they're inactive. <laughs> All right, now scenario number two. The Braves do not add Josh Donaldson and end up going into the season with Austin Riley or Johan Camargo splitting time at, of some sort uh, at third base, and the moves are complete. Nothing else gets done. No outfielder, no... Nope. No, that's not good. You can't do that. No, that's not good. Right? Okay. Is there a now, third scenario? Here I is... like the first one a lot better. <laughs> so here's... All right, so let's even change that second scenario. Let's say no Josh Donaldson. They roll with Riley and Camargo. And let's say just for the sake of it, they add... Uh, Let's just say Marcelo Zuna. I don't think they're going to be in on Marcelo Zuna, but if they can't get Josh Donaldson, I would assume there's going to be some mad scrambling. So let's just say, for the sake of argument, that they add in, that they bring in uh, Marcelo Zuna. That would be much more palatable, I think, um, than than just being done as it stands now. Um, the Obviously. Well, sure. They, they need a, they need a bat, and I, and and Austin Riley is going to get some time. Johan Camargo is going to get some time, whether it's out in the outfield or at third or whatever. So th- this is why they why I think they're they're talking about being so flexible with um, what they can do moving forward. But yeah, I still like the first scenario better. Just you, I don't buy into the the clubhouse cancer thing as much as some people like to push that narrative, and you know. You know Donaldson fits. You know, a lot of people were saying he's a clubhouse cancer, and then they realized, like, oh, my God, he, he's actually really good friends with all of these guys. There's a, bu- there's a bunch of people that say that about literally everybody who's not will, a brave. Sure. So I, anytime, anytime somebody mentions clubhouse cancer, there are maybe three players in all of Major League Baseball that I think of as an actual clubhouse yeah. cancer. That is Yasiel Puig. Mm-hmm. And whether you guys want to fight with me or not, you can ask anybody who's around locker rooms. They'll tell you the same thing about Yasiel Puig. Uh, I think of Matt Kemp. Again, ask anybody who's been in a locker room in Major League Baseball. They'll tell you the same thing. Uh, those are the two glaring examples that I have. There's probably a few more in the league that just haven't come to mind yet, but those are the glaring two. Now, when I say that Puig is a cancer, does it mean that I don't like Puig? No. I just think personality-wise, he grows thin very, very quickly. And it's not even that he's a bad guy. It's just Puig himself. Like, it's just, that's who he is. He's very, very different guy. And I, I would even start to throw, like, I would have said you in a Cespedes, but his teammates have never had a problem with Cespedes. There's, a, like, teams don't like Cespedes because he brings a lot of ruckus with him. But players and teammates, I've never heard a bad word about Cespedes. I've never heard a bad word about Marcelo Zuna. I've never heard a bad word about half of these guys. I've never heard a bad word about Bryce Harper. Everybody keeps bringing up Jonathan Papelbon. Jonathan Papelbon was the clubhouse cancer, not Bryce that's, Harper. That's very true. I've heard some bad things about Adam Eaton. 
uh, as well. He's oh, that's right. Adam Eaton. Adam Eaton would be uh, the other one because as anybody who's played with Adam Eaton, i.e., Todd Frazier, wants to punch him in the face. Yeah, I, I love how um, <laughs> Todd Frazier legit wants to wants to stab Adam Eaton. But to the point, as it pertains to being being a clubhouse cancer, a lot of people said that about Josh Donaldson, and now we know that he's he's just brash. You know, and somebody like Ozuna, that's not to say that he wouldn't show up and just completely fit right in with everybody and everything would be good. There wouldn't be like the weird adjustment period or whatever. Donaldson's already I mean, he had everybody's favorite uh, home run celebration. You know, after at the end of last year, I mean, it went from him being like a, a hillbilly punk to being just like super fun as soon as he got good. That's the other thing. Clubhouse cancers, they're all bad at baseball, too. Um, just in, as far as the narrative goes. But, you know, uh, he just fits. He just belongs here. He, he became such a brave in, in his time here. So what are we got we got to stop talking about Donaldson. I'm, I'm getting sad at the fact that he hasn't signed yet. Well. <laughs> I'm going to finish this with, with my point of view, and I'm at this weird spot in either one of those scenarios. I'm not certain I can really be upset with the offseason, no matter how else the rest of this goes down, because for years I have been wanting the Braves to do one thing above all else, and that's increase payroll. And whether or not they sign Josh Donaldson, they've increased payroll up to around 140 once we get into arbitration, which we'll talk about in a second very briefly. But if they do bring back Donaldson and do nothing else, you're looking at about 160 to $165 million payroll. That's all I've been asking for for years. That is a payroll that can compete with everybody else as long as you're making good moves and having as many young guys as we have on the team. $166 million means that you have got a lot of good pieces everywhere else. So if the Braves do, in fact, add Josh Donaldson, I believe it will propel them into the top 10 as far as opening day payrolls. So even in that scenario, if they don't get Josh Donaldson, I believe they're about halfway around the league, but it's still a market increase from where it was last year. And for me, I don't think I could call it necessarily a failure of an offseason. Now, I would be very, I'd be disappointed in our playoff chances because you wouldn't have a, a real cleanup hitter. You'd have to do a lot of creative things. But I don't think I could call it a, a I don't think I could call it a bad offseason because the one thing I wanted to have happen has already happened. Yeah, and and like I said, the the fact that they haven't done anything in a while, it makes it seem like they're being idle. It's easy to forget that they came out and they fired off like four or five moves like immediately. You know, not just the the Marcakis and Flowers stuff, but also getting Martin and O'Day and, and signing Darno and everybody. Like I I got a little like frisky, you know, like, oh my God, we're going to sign everybody. You know, we're going to trade for Mookie and we're going to trade for Arenado. And then we're going to trade for Bryant and put him in left field. And, you know, and then he could play third base on the days that, uh, that Arenado's off, you know, all these crazy things. And now it's just like, okay, well, it's been five weeks. Can we, can we get anything? Like, can we sign a minor leaguer? Oh, that's right. We signed Pete Cosma. We signed Pete Cosma yeah, to a minor league. That's deal. not the guy that I want to bring. That's not the guy that I wanted to see. <laughs> Uh, you are speaking for all of us. <laughs> for those of you that are unaware, um, Mr. Pete Cosma, Doc, could you tell us what in Braves country Pete Cosma is famous uh, for? The outfield fly roll ball fell about two feet from Pete Cosma. That's bringing up a lot of bad memories. Yeah, why uh, did you make me talk about the that, man? Actually, I'm, I brought it up. Because I'm always the bad guy here. I needed somebody else to be the bad guy. <laughs> hey, that's fine. That's fine. 
as was mentioned in one of our iTunes reviews, though, there is somebody on my side who uh, has has noted that you channeled Syedine in an episode. So you are. I don't even know what that means. Further proof that oh you're God. tainted. I hate being tainted. Can we? Go- now that that's something that they're very select group of people are going to know, and they're going to really appreciate that reference. Uh, but but we do need to move on because. Uh, we, we've got some other really good stuff to get to after this, uh, along with some NL East previews. But arbitration figures are coming out uh, very soon. Was it Friday or tomorrow, actually? Um, and you and the boys over at Talking Chop have thrown out your projections. So I know you've been, you guys have been working on this. So, Doc, let everybody know what our arbitration figures are. I'm assuming I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a few guesses before you really get into this. So when you say the name, I'm going to try to guess. Okay, well, these these actually these aren't so much like um, staff picks for what exactly we think is going to happen. This is just these are based off of the numbers from <clears throat> from MLB trade rumors that that they came up with, and and you know all of this is all already factored into payroll. These these estimates when you hear somebody talking about 130, 140 million dollars at current payroll, that estimates what these are. So based on what happens here, these could either go up or go down. Um, so Mike Fultonavich is looking like he's he's estimated at seven and a half million dollars. I thought you were gonna let me guess. That's the exact number that I was well, gonna guess. Well you're one for one then. So I'm off to I'm O for one and you're one for one. See if you open if you open the attachment then you know then we can go back and forth. But I already know what the next one is so I'll just I'll just guess. How about for Shane Green? Shane Green I am going to guess nine and a half. Are we doing this like prices right rules? Uh, sure. Okay, then you went way over. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you okay. don't get to play in the showcase showdown. He's he's slated at six and a half. So I think that looking at both, we can look at both of these guys kind of in a in a similar vein with each other. Like f- both of them had kind of Jekyll and Hyde seasons. Um, Green was much better while he was in Detroit, and he actually he wasn't nearly as bad as he appeared. In Atlanta, he made a lot of enemies that first week or two, and he, by and large, he was pretty solid. After that, I was one of those enemies. Well, that's that is very true. Well, let me ask you a question: If he hadn't been traded for Joey Wentz, how mad would you be at Shane Green right now? I still would have, because I didn't want him when he was being brought up, and it's you know he was really good last year. And he really wasn't as bad with the Braves as is advertised. He just he was involved in a lot of very disappointing things. Uh, he's the one that lost the lead in game four against the Cardinals. Uh, he's the one that got blown up like the day that they got him. He did get traded for Joey Wentz, who went on to absolutely obliterate double A for the Detroit Tigers. Um, I've just never, I've never been a Shane Green guy because I remember not two years ago, he was the worst reliever in baseball. But last year, he was right pretty good. <laughs> now, granted, last year he was, now he was what you just said about he wasn't as bad in Atlanta as his numbers looked. I'm also going to just cause I'm a jerk. Uh, he also was worse than his numbers in Detroit looked on the surface. Take away the first week or two. He was like the last six weeks that he was here. He was solid. I'm and, and this is, he was part no doubt. of that. No doubt. He was part of that Marlins meltdown, the Sean Newcomb fire extinguisher game. Um, I think a lot of that one was his fault, but that was like that one bad week. And then after that, he was fine. His ERA wound up being four and his ERA was, ERA was, excuse me, ERA was 4.01. FIP was 3.94. So even with 
having like, cause like the first two weeks his FIP was like 20. It was legit like 20 for a while. And then it, it wound up getting back to a moderately respectable rate. So for me, six and a half million dollars for a guy who's going to get a lot of time in the eighth, seventh, eighth inning. I mean, high leverage reliever, you know, this is a, this is a guy that's like, you're going to lean on him a lot. So I think six and a half is probably about right. I mean, what do you what do you think? What do what do you give Shane Green? I mean, six and a half seems right. It's his final year of arbitration, which is usually where you get the most. So, I mean, he wasn't he wasn't a ten million dollar type reliever, good, um, but he certainly wasn't you know like a two million dollar reliever, bad. I think he's a guy that you feel I feel more comfortable with Shane Green knowing that he's like my seventh inning guy than I do feeling with him as my eighth or ninth inning. I almost view him like Luke Jackson. I knew you were um, about to go there. I think. <laughs> I think I think the difference is like I'm not huge on relievers that don't have elite stuff, and Shane Green does not have elite anything. He doesn't have elite velocity. He doesn't have elite movement. So like that's that's usually why I'm a little bit more down on him. So when he gets squared up, he gets squared up hard. But at, at six and a half, I do, I don't feel bad about it. Like I told you, I was thinking it was going to be upwards of nine and a half. So I, I six and a half, I'm perfectly fine with. And I'm guessing that I still, I still, I still, by the way, am very angry that the original trade didn't go down and we has to substitute for Joey Wentz. I'm very angry about that. Yeah, that's, um, that, that would have been Alex Jackson instead. Alex Jackson and Travis Demerit for, uh, for Shane Green. Instead, it was Travis Demerit and Joey Wentz. That seems like a pretty big jump from, from one yeah, of the other, it doesn't was. it? I can't remember who was getting in on it, but somebody got into the deal late and ended up not giving a competitive offer. The Braves ended up overpaying. Huh? It was probably Mike Rizzo. It was probably <laughs> probably I'll, uh, I'll, it might have been it might have been Washington yeah. actually. It really might have been. Well, because they wound up getting uh, they got Hunter Strickland, they got uh, Ruinus Elias, and they got Daniel Hudson. Right. So they they were really active right. at the trade deadline too. The Braves and the Nationals both added three relievers mm-hmm. at the deadline. Hmm. Well, if anybody who's listening and winds up uh, getting into GMing in your next life, uh, that's a really good way to, to undercut fellow GMs is by upping or creating a bidding war and uh, getting teams to offload their, some of their best prospects. We miss you, Joey. And Dylan, um, maybe not this year, but one of these years, I will get you a Joey Wentz Detroit Tigers jersey. <laughs> You don't have to wear it all yeah, the time. I'll, only only some of the time. It'll be in my... I'll, I'll wear it when they come to Atlanta. There you go. So next up on the list, we've got Adam Duvall. I will not tell you the number. You have to guess the number. Three and a half. Just slightly north of that. It's 3.8 million. You comfortable with that? Yeah. I mean, especially if you're expecting him to play a full uh, full platoon role, three and a half is, is about right. It's just under what Marcakis makes. Um I go back and forth on what I expect from Duval. I don't think he's going to hit 30 home runs. I don't think he's I don't think he's going to put up the same numbers he put up in AAA. But a return to 18 to 23 is certainly possible. Uh, he's still going to hit you around 240, 230, 240. But he plays really good defense. He can play either corner, uh, and he's a guy that you can slot in at fourth or fifth on days where, like, say you didn't have Josh Donaldson. Duvall is probably your cleanup hitter or your fifth hitter. When you add Donaldson, it makes the lineup a little bit better. And, and Duvall is a guy that we've seen be able to come off the bench and provide power. So three, three point eight, perfectly fine. Same for me. I I think that's um, the best thing about having Duvall around is 
he does he does definitely struggle at times, but last year his power showed back up big time. Not just in AAA, but he actually you know he wound up OPSing close to 900 uh, once he once he came back up after Marcakis got hurt. He crushes lefties. He's going to um, he's going to be the against lefty pitching side of that platoon with Marcakis. I think that um, I, I don't know how long Marcakis's leash is going to be this year. Um, I, I think that, you know, this is going to be his sixth year with the team. So they obviously are really, they really like him. They really care about what he brings to this team. But at the same time, if you're trying to win a World Series, you know, you have to start playing platoons and do that type of stuff. And sitting Marcakis against lefties and having somebody like Duvall come in, that's huge. I mean, just even if he only winds up hitting seven or eight home runs this year, and some of them in a pinch-hitting role. He he checks a lot of boxes. He makes a lot of sense for this team. So $3.8 million, maybe they try and settle at like 3.5 or something, but that's not a big enough figure to where I think they're going to have to like get to some really messy arbitration hearing or something like that. So hopefully they can avoid some nonsense there. Uh, the next one on this list, Dansby Swanson. All right, so this is interesting because you're going to have to go by which Dansby Swanson are the Braves going to offer the figure to. Is it going to be the healthy Dansby or is it going to be the Dansby after the wrist injury, uh, which seems to be a theme with him. But what did Dansby make last year, 1.7? I think, well, this is his first year in arbitration. I think he was still making league minimum last year. Okay, so I will say 2.2. 3.3. They It looks like they bought in a lot into what he was doing in the first half. What do you do? Uh, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to let him be a free agent. Oh, oh sure. Um, I mean, 3.3 for a starting shortstop is not bad. Um, the thing with Dansby, and this, again, it's just, it always sounds like I'm hating on him when I'm really not right now. Uh, when, when you look at what he provided, it was 1.7 war, I believe, uh, 1.7 F war from him last year. But now that Mike Petriello has gotten outs above average for infielders, there's a lot of people who have always tried to tell me that it's just fan graphs hating on Dansby's defense, but you can see by outs above average, he's completely average defensively, which is fine. What he does really well is something that I outlined in the playoffs is he doesn't make errors. And that's something that the Braves really rely on when they have so many guys that hit ground balls. So 3.3 is not bad. I, I don't know that it's actually going to be that high because the Braves will fully be able to point to the fact that he hasn't finished a season healthy yet with Atlanta. Um, and while he's had spurts of being really good, they've been followed by spurts of being really bad. When you try and do an extension, do something like five years and... Five years and 20 million? I was thinking like 25, 30, somewhere around there. Because if he continues to escalate yeah. and you're buying out three arbitration years, you know, say say that he gets three million on the nose this year and then five next year and then seven the year after that, that's... I mean, that's three for 15, five and 25, five and 25 is fine. Five and 30 is still fine. If you think that he's going to be healthy, really the only way that you don't want to do five and 30 is if you're worried that he's a chronic injury guy. Um, even if he doesn't really perform very well, I mean, 6 million a year for your starting shortstops, not, not a lot of money at all. That's essentially, that's essentially Jose Iglesias range. And I think that's a fair range for Dansby. Uh, Iglesias is a way better defender. But Dansby is better at the plate, and he does have power. So if he can stay healthy, 
Dansby's power numbers, even though he doesn't particularly walk a lot and he strikes out a lot, his power numbers will offset a lot of that as well. So, I mean, I'd be fine with 5 and 30, ultimately. Am I saying that I wouldn't upgrade from him if possible? No, I do. I still think he's, aside from Nick Marcakis, Dansby is the number one guy to upgrade from if you're just going by totals. Um, but I, I think the Braves are, are fine with him. And if you're saying that it's 5 and 30, it's not like it's a massive contract to move. This is baseball. You tell somebody's going to think they could fix him no matter what. So five and thirty would be fine. Five and twenty-five would be excellent. Five and thirty would still be okay. Fair enough. Uh, for the record, I also would extend him for that. All right. So, <clears throat> Luke Jackson, how much? How much do you think he's going to get, and how much would you give him? I think he's going to get right at two million. Um, anywhere from one point eight to two. Um, I'd pay it for him actually. I know he's the easy punching bag, but Luke Luke strike. He's one of the few guys in that bullpen that strikes out a ton of people. I believe his his K per nine rate was over thirteen per nine. Um, and we talk about he's really kind of a two pitch guy, fastball slider, uh, and depends on who's catching him really. Um, but when his slider's on, it's untouchable. Um, when his fastball, when he's lo- the problem with Luke is locating the fastball. Um, when he has to go to the fastball, that tends to be when he gets crushed. There's also a lot of bad luck inherent in Luke Jackson. I don't know if it's just he got really unlucky for a lot of different games or if there's something in his particular repertoire that kind of pretends him to bad luck. And we talk about this with guys like Marcelo Zuna. It's what always gets brought up with his his uh, expected stats versus his regular stats and the fact that he's had the highest gap between his Waba and ex-Waba the last two seasons. Luke Jackson kind of feels that way as a pitcher. Like, if you're quote unquote unlucky one time, that's just bad luck. Uh, if you are, if you're unlucky thirty or forty percent of your appearances, all of a sudden it seems more like an issue with your fastball, whether the way it spins or the way your arm angle puts it in there. Just something, something about the way he throws the ball that leads towards bad luck, as opposed to anything else. But I'd be fine with somewhere around two. He's projected at one point nine, so. Oh yeah, perfectly. Yeah, fine. I think I think that's pretty much a slam dunk right there. And if they were to go up to like two point two five, or even if he got two point five, I I wouldn't even bat an eye at it. He was see, I I would go under two and a half for the simple reason of he's not going to be a high leverage guy. He does not want to be a high leverage guy, so I I wouldn't pay him. I mean, he was he was good enough to deserve two. He's probably good enough to deserve two and a half. But I don't know if I if I'm being value conscious, I probably don't do two and a half. No, well, and and I don't think I would necessarily have that as my starting point. But more so, just to say, if he got that, I'd say, huh, that's more than I expected, and move on. There would be no like getting mad about it or or anything. I think that's fair because for the longest time he was, fair. he and Josh Tomlin were all we had, you know. Yeah, I think that, I think that's fair. Okay, well, good. So we got two left. And this next one is real interesting too. Johan Camargo. All right, so this is going to be one where I think the Braves take advantage of the fact that they're going to be able to get him for less than they thought they would. So if if Camargo had come up for arbitration after 2018, uh, I think with the three and a half where that he put up in 2018, he'd have been looking at a fairly high starting arbitration, probably somewhere around five or six million. Um, after last season, though. Uh, being up and down. He did look good, but it was only for two weeks after coming back from AAA. I think 1.6 to 1.8 is probably the range. 1.6. You're doing great. Hey, 
This is what I do. <laughs> now, I think uh, I think Camargo is... Uh, if Camargo gets the requisite playing time across all the positions, or if he's even still here, because it's not out of the realm that Camargo's traded. Um, if, if he gets the requisite playing time, I mean... I think he'll outplay that 1.6 million pretty pretty heavily. I do. I still believe in Camargo a lot. Um, I do believe in the adjustments he made to his swing. It looked a lot more fluid. It looked a lot better as far as uh, the the fluidity and the timing. So I, I do believe that that's something that's real. It just depends on can he be a guy that can perform getting one or two at bats because he's probably only going to get one at bat to start to start the year. My guess is. Depending on how spring training goes, because spring the spring training battle between Camargo and Riley, assuming they're both here, is going to be a huge battle because that's going to determine which of them is actually going to get playing time on off days. The other one will be relegated to a, rent, a bench bat for a while, um, and I, I think it depends on how either one of those two can perform in one at bat scenarios. If Camargo has fixed his timing to where he doesn't need two or three at bats a game to get his timing, then I think he's a he's a good bet to outplay that one point six million. Once again, that's contingent on Donaldson. If Donaldson walks and they wind up filling the hole in the outfield, I think that you're looking at a real shot that Camargo could be your opening day third baseman. So, I would certainly i would I would say I would say that they would go with Riley over Camargo, essentially just because while I am a proponent of Camargo over Riley, I know the Braves would probably rather stick with the high profile prospect who has a ton of power. And with without Donaldson, you're going to be looking for somebody who can hit in that fourth hole. And you figure if if Riley can make the adjustments like he's done at the other stops, he would be a prototypical fourth hole type of hitter, as opposed to Camargo, who's not really that 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 fourth hole prototype. Uh, not to say that I would pick Riley over Camargo because I I do really do believe in Camargo, um, but I think Atlanta would go with Riley over Camargo, especially judging last year, neither one of them had a good enough campaign to definitively say one is better than the other. So I think in the case of that, they'd roll with the higher prospect. No, I, th- I think that's that's pretty fair. You, I can see a scenario where either of them, if JD doesn't come back, that either of them does wind up being able to step into that role. So I would, I would give him the 1.6. I was really, really impressed with what I saw when he came back in September. And man, 12 at-bats, 12 plate appearances is nothing to get like super excited about, but he looked different. He looked really, really different, and and I think that um, that could that could be really good for next year. He looked confident. Yeah, he did. He really, really did. So that version of him, kind of rearing his head at the end of last year and saying, "Hey guys, I'm I'm still in here. I I can still do this. I just need to." He he just needs regular playing time, which he never got last year. So. I would give him 1.6, and I would look at that being as a steal next year, even if he's not a starter. So we got one more on here, and only one. Actually, I, I can't give that intro because I'm not giving the, the numbers away. Grant Dayton, left-handed pitcher. Grant Dayton. Okay, this is – I would not go above a million dollars. I think um, probably 800000 anywhere from 750 to about 850 You have to be cheating. He's he's right at eight hundred grand, so oh, really? yeah. So um, <laughs> um, see, Dayton is actually a guy that I wouldn't. I don't think that they'll bring back. Not that it's a ton of money, and I know that they're kind of lefty sparse in the bullpen, but I don't think Dayton's a guy that's going to move the needle for them either way. I was really excited when they picked him up. He was still recovering from Tommy John, but I mean his his numbers from when he was with the Dodgers twenty. 
14, 15, 16. I can't remember the the exact timeline that he was there. Some somewhere in there. Twenty sixteen was twenty sixteen was the big year where I think it was like a two thirty seven ERA. Had a lot of strikeouts okay. too. So I remember being really pumped and uh, thinking that you know he's that's a guy that's worth waiting for. And last year he just didn't he didn't look anything like that guy. So eight hundred grand. Eh, I mean, that's that's really not a lot when they've raised payroll as much as they have. I mean, that's not even a lot when, if they hadn't raised payroll. But you're right. They're sparse with lefties. I mean, you look at who else is out there. I mean, you're looking at Dayton or, like, A.J. Minter to step in the bullpen on opening day now ooh, for ooh, guys that are, like, ooh. still in the system. So <sighs> it's tricky. It's ugly. It'll be somebody else. You know, because if if the plan is to have Newcomb at least compete for the rotation, I mean, it's entirely possible. Yeah, you've got you've got to replace him. That would leave your only lefty as Will Smith, and he's not going to wind up being somebody that you can actually. I mean, and even playing matchups next year, I mean, that's going to be a thing of the past now because you've got the three batter minimum. That's that's what I think hurts Grant Dayton. Uh, he did show you that while he was he was pretty effective against lefties when he got the opportunity, he was not effective at all versus righties. And I do think that that's going to play a role. Uh, I think that's going to play a role in a lot of different in a lot of different ways. I think the days of the loogie, I think lefties lefty relievers should be very upset because from it seems to me that lefty relievers get a lot more of the one and done treatment as compared to their right-handed counterparts. Now, that's probably because there are less lefties than righties, so it's easier to make it to the big leagues as a lefty reliever than a righty reliever. So those types of splits that you see that are very common with a lot of lefty relievers, I don't think that that's something that's going to pay a lot of dividends. I think for the first time in a while, you'll see more teams use uh, only one, maybe two lefties in a bullpen as opposed to some teams having three or four to go with matchups. I think you'll see a lot of that go out the window. It's going to be interesting to track the ripple effect of what happens with all that. You know, anytime you get, you, by you the way, like a rule change like that, it's unintended consequences. There's always some. Right. And by the way, just, just in closing, before we end this segment here, um, one thing that I would do with Dayton is I would decline the arbitration and then I'd offer him uh, a minor league deal with an invite to spring training. That that would be what I would do for Dayton. So so you still got him in your back pocket in case you need him. Yeah, I don't I don't think he's a guy that anybody's gonna be beating the door down to bring him in. I think that you could decline his arbitration, make him a free agent. I think he'd still be there for you to be able to to make a minor league offer too. And even if that minor league offer is still seven hundred thousand, that's fine too. Um, I, I I I think that Dayton is a guy that would be a candidate to be dropped. And then if you can't upgrade, you can bring him back with a minor league deal with an invite to spring training. Good thinking. I was about to pound my fist on the on the desk, but I think it would shake the microphone and just be loud as hell, and nobody wants that. <laughs> so, so, how many did I get right? I think I went on like a four or five in a row. I run think here. aside from the Shane Green, when you were pretty much on the window for for just about everybody. So, oh, and Dansby, I got Dansby eh, wrong. Well, you shouldn't have done that. You hate Dansby. Of course, you got Dansby wrong. <laughs> I know, I know, <laughs> but. <laughs> I know so we'd be ending real quick because this doesn't take a lot of follow-up. Um, SunTrust Park is going to go through a name change. Doc, do you care at all? It would be nice if they named it after Hank Aaron. I, I kind of can't believe they didn't do that to begin with, but I, I wasn't wild about SunTrust Park, about the name, when, when it first happened, and now I 
I haven't even thought about it since about four minutes after they announced it. So don't really care either way. What do you think? Do you, you want them to name it uh, Kenshin Kawakami Field? I don't care what they name it. It would be cool. I think we should call it the Hammer no matter what. I think it, that would be better as a yes. nickname. Um, but I, I don't. I really don't care either way. Now, there is an interesting point that it may end up affecting the salary because it is going to be... Um, the Braves are going to get a lot of money for the name for the rights to change the name, which is something they did uh, before SunTrust actually bought the rights to the name is they did set it up to where they could sell the naming rights and they'll make a lot of money that way, which should in return help with the fact that the TV deal that Ted Turner signed with the Braves was a garbage TV deal. Um, I, I That's kind of cool. I don't expect the name to change a whole lot, but I don't really care about the name that's above the, I don't really care about the name above the field. Win a World Series and you can name it whatever you want. I don't care. Yeah, that's, I mean, it would be, I w- by the way, at the risk of pissing everybody off, I feel the same thing about the chop. Yeah, I mean, I do not, it's, care. it's gonna be there no matter what, regardless of whether they pump it through the PA, people will chop, you know, and I do not care. It was brought about for Deion Sanders. It was a copy of Florida State when they did it. I do not care. I'm honestly more than anything. I'm, I kind of get sick of the the narrative surrounding it more than I get sick of it. the The biggest thing about the chop now is that it's just overused. It's so overused. Yes. So scale it back. Every two strike, every two strike count. I mean, every like I shouldn't be hearing the chop in the second inning with nobody on base. <laughs> I'm just right. saying. Yeah. So, um. It would be cool. It would be cool if they they took the battery and they would have like regions. Like, you know, you call your buddy. It's like, hey, where are you? Like, oh, I'm over by Wahlburgers. Well, I don't know where that is. Oh, I'm in uh, I'm in like Greg Maddoxville or I'm in John Smoltz land or whatever. And you can see see it like from overhead to where it's like a bird's eye view. You've got like, uh, you know, I'm at Raphael Belliard Station over here or whatever. I mean, something that kind of pays tribute to. Braves past, I think would be would be pretty cool. Not not just Hank, but but everybody. I I like that. I like that a lot because I would love a way to have Chipper and Hank both, uh, Chipper and Hank and and Maddox obviously, but at least Chipper and Hank get recognized. I, I or even Bobby Cox as well. I think that would be cool. Yeah, absolutely. So good idea, Doc. Way to end the first segment. On hey, the thanks. Uh, but, I almost banged my fist on the desk again, dude. We gotta <laughs> stop. <laughs> As I mentioned, we got to take a break here. When we come back, we'll finish up this episode with some listener questions, something that we always like to do. So stick around. You won't want to miss that. We'll be back in just a second right here on the Platinum Sombrero. to the Platinum Sombrero. Ladies and gentlemen, still episode number 97, Doc Herbert here. Generally, now is a time when I would tell you a little bit about Blue Chew or Manscaped. However, it has come to our attention that this week, I don't get to talk about them, but I want to talk to you about something. So this week, the Platinum Sombrero podcast is brought to you by Heavy Metal Crayons. Are you sick of Roy G. Biv and the occasional Burnt Sienna? Well, 
With heavy metal crayons, you don't have to color with boring old red anymore. You can use lamb's blood or demon horn. You can chant your vengeful mantras and pine for terminal desolation while using the all-new fire and flames shade of orange. We've even managed to identify the colors of anarchy and torture. Also, be sure to try our new Prince of Darkness edition, which is just 666 shades of black, including Sin, Abyss, Witch Hunt, Eternal Damnation, and I can't believe I didn't think of this the first time, Black Sabbath. Heavy Metal Crayons. Patent pending. Okay, so, we mentioned that we've got some listener questions. We've got some really, really good listener questions, and we're going to get to those in a second. But before we do, it came out this week that the experiment with robot umpires, which they did in the Arizona Fall League this year, and in some places with Independent Ball, where they're experimenting with all kinds of crazy rules, it looks like they're going to take the next step on this. And if I'm not mistaken, these are going to wind up being used in minor league baseball next year in an effort to push these into the major leagues. A lot of people get really up in arms about traditions and the way that the game is constantly evolving. And this seems to be a really, really big point for a lot of people. I mean, some people can't even talk about the DAs coming to the National League without having an aneurysm. So the idea of robot umps and removing some of the human element is obviously a big deal for somebody. I'm kind of on the fence about this, Dylan. So I would really, really like to let you go first and tell me kind of what are your thoughts? Do you want robot umps? Do you think it'll be beneficial? Give me everything you got. I really don't want the robot umps, and I understand how annoying it is and how how much of a, a momentum shift it can be when umpires are not calling good calls, and I fully understand umpires are fallible, and I get it. The, the problem is when you get into robot umps and automated strike zones, they're going to be judging it based off of a different set of guidelines. And just as somebody who's umpired before, there are a lot of gray areas when it comes to judging a strike zone. Now, if you go strictly by the rule book, it doesn't matter where the ball ends up. It only matters where it crosses the, the frontmost portion of the plate. The problem with this is there are a lot of movement-based pitches, things like splitters and things like cutters, uh, things like s certain sliders and even sweeping curves, for example, that when they cross the plate and a split second afterwards is two totally different motions. So if it crosses, like if it just touches the plane of the plate and it's knee high, and then the next instant it's ankle high, a robot ump is going to call that a strike. And we saw that uh, in the AFL when they were using those, or was it the AFL? Was it uh, what, what league was using it? I, I think it was the AFL. The, the clip that, that went kind of viral was, uh, was Jacob Hayward, uh, Jason's brother, giants prospect. Just yeah. really losing his mind on a uh, on a robot ump, and uh, a pitch that a normal human umpire would not have called a strike because it was not a strike the way that we view a strike. Um, it, you're going to get a lot of you're going to get a lot of tiki tacks like that. It's going to change the way that you it's going to change the way that you look at hitting and pitching, and it's honestly it's going to take away a lot of the offense from the game because pitchers are, are always going to know that they just have to nick a corner. It doesn't have to actually sustain a corner. It just has to nick one. We also see a lot of these where if pitchers are showing you that they can consistently hit the same spot, umpires will give them that spot. But they usually won't give it to them until they can show they can hit it a few times. So, for instance, umpires, at least when I was umpiring, everybody has their own slightly different system. But... The way you judge an inside corner versus an outside corner, for example. An outside corner, most umpires will give you about half of a ball to three quarters of a ball, maybe even a full baseball 
off the plate in most examples. When you're talking about an inside corner, at most you get half of a baseball off for the inside corner. A robot ump's not going to know that, so that pit, that ump, that robot ump is going to call that a strike on the inside portion of the plate. It's going to call it a ball on the outside portion. Um, or it's it's only going to matter, like, uh, like Brent Honeywell and his screwball, for example. Uh, he's not going to be able to backdoor a screwball because it's not going to reach the front. It's not going to reach the plate and be in the strike zone until it's about halfway across the plate. And I know by the, the letter of the law, you can say, yeah, well, then it's a ball. It's just not the way that we judge balls and strikes. Uh, I, I would be much more in favor of a, a live speed ability to challenge a strike call, not one that's going to take you know, where they go under the hood and have to look at it, just one where you've got somebody watching the game with the K zone uh, in in New York or somebody in the stadium even, throw in an extra umpire and have all he's doing is watching the K zone. Uh, and if you want to challenge a call, they can call right to that guy right there and he can tell you ball strike and that's it. Uh, I, I don't like the idea of stopping play all the time, so maybe you'd have to put in a limit of how many of those you could check, but I'm really not a fan of, of automated strike zones. I think it's going to do more to hurt the game than to help the game. I think it'll take away a lot of the offense, and I, I really don't like it at all. It it's going It's not going to reward pitchers who can move the strike zone out of the way. Like Guys like Greg Maddox would have been horrible with an automated strike zone. And I'm I'm just I'm not in favor of stuff like that. Th- this is a tricky one. The human element is is the best and worst part of baseball sometimes, especially when you get into get into umpiring and sometimes umpires get vindictive with their pitchers. You know, you talk about, you know, once you establish that you're trying to hit this spot, then I'll give you that pitch, but you know, if if you're on a rut and then you throw a really good curveball that is a strike, but you haven't demonstrated you can hit that spot enough, then that's the type of thing. Like, Fulton Avich is the first one who comes to mind, who's like, it almost seems like the umpires do kind of not pick on him, but for lack of a better term, they kind of pick on, on him a little bit because they know that they have the power to throw him off of his game. Now, granted, it's not all on them, but it, it's it seemed like balls and strikes have been getting worse like noticeably so like there, there's gonna be some element of human error you know which is kind of the beauty in the game sometimes but it's really seemed like in the past three or four years or even the last one or two years that what constitutes a strike between umpires has really been different like when we watch Braves games, okay, we have our usual feed, we have our camera angle. We know what a strike looks like on the Braves broadcast. And But if you go, you watch like a Cardinals game, the angle may be slightly different. So the way that that fan base perceives a strike might be slightly different from the way A's fans do it and the way Mariners fans do it. And it's different from everybody, for fans. But for umpires, it should be uniform. And when you get into defining the strike zone, I mean, if it's going to be robotic, you can make it any shape you want. You can have it be a nebula. You can have it be an oval. Or you can have it be the strike zone as it's designed. And it's important to remember that if this does wind up coming to the major leagues, how it is in the first year is not how it's going to be for good. And I think that the idea of having... I like the idea of replay because it keeps... You know, you look back at, at certain historical plays... Um, not Andre Scalaraga. I can't. Uh, he was the guy that he pitched for the Tigers, who had the perfect game. That Armando broke up on the, on the last. What was his name? Armando Galarraga. 
Armando Galarraga, not Andres. And even the, the first base umpire came out and, and publicly said, and he's like, I blew it. I totally blew it. Not I just, not just said game. that. He was broken up about it. Yeah, he was. And, and had replay been in place for something like that, you can avoid something like that. Outfield's fly rule, actually, you can't review those. So that maybe that wouldn't work. But there's all these different things where you have replay in place to, to keep it true, right? But you should never really have to be concerned with who the home base umpire is. Because if, if it's Angel Hernandez, it's in your head before you even throw a pitch. If it's Joe West, you know you're going to have... It, umpires are like vice presidents. If you hear about them at all, it's probably bad. You don't ever want to hear anybody talking about the vice president for the most part. So, and it's the same thing with an umpire. Like, you should never know your umpire's name. He should be back there. He should do his job. You should be seen by not being seen, if that makes any sense. So, but in the spirit of getting it right, I love the idea of something. I like the idea of what you're talking about with the the extra umpire who's like maybe sitting over by the ball boy or something. And he, his job is only to watch watch it on K-Zone. And they don't have to like call New York or anything like that. That's another thing that, that needs totally redone with replay. But like as you get into these little micro checks for umpires, at least for balls and strikes to start, I think that's a great idea. But this is, man, uh, like I said, people can't talk about the DH without <laughs> totally losing their minds. This is going to... We will see trolling go to a whole different level if this ever winds up getting to MLB. I just don't. I just don't think it's good for the game. And I, I'm. You guys know I'm certainly not a traditionalist type stickler, but there are certain things that I, I just don't want to take away from the game. And going to an automated strike zone is one of those because baseball is so much about adjustments. I don't want. I don't want a strike zone like that. I. Like there are certainly there are I think the bigger issue is not that we need an automated strike zone. I think it's the fact that the umpires union is too soft on umpires like Angel Hernandez who just shouldn't be umpires. I think that's I think that's more the problem. It's certain umpires and there are plenty of umpires who are great at what they do. But you don't know their names because they're great at what they do. You only know the ones that suck. And for me, I think I would much rather just get rid of those guys, which the umpires union isn't going to do to me. That's who should be. That's who should be getting attacked more is the umpires union for allowing substandard umpiring uh, and allowing it to go on. But that, that's just me personally. I don't want to get too bogged down on that. If we have another week where we don't have a lot to go on, maybe we'll delve into that a little bit more when we kind of look at some of these rules that are potentially going to be in place. But for now we want to get to a lot of the questions that you guys brought up to us and there's a few of them that we had to cut so if you don't hear your question it's not that we don't like you or that we didn't like the question there were a couple of these questions that we answered when we talked about josh donaldson in the first segment so uh in the sake of time for the sake of time we're not going to rehash those so uh to, to those of you that don't hear your questions don't be upset uh we thank you anyway for for bringing questions to us but that being said uh the first question out of the gate is from swaggy g at g boyington Thoughts on Mike Clevenger to Atlanta. Doc, why don't you kick us off? I don't know if that <clears throat> question is, is a direct reference to the tweet that I had uh, put out today saying, I hope that the Braves hurry up and sign Josh Donaldson so they can send 115 prospects to Cleveland for Mike Clevenger. He is a really, really intriguing option. He's a young guy, He or he's he's 29, uh, going into arbitration one. He's slated to make $4.5 million this year. If they if the Braves sign Josh Donaldson, then they 
still have a couple of holes to fill, but they have kind of limited funds to do it. And part of the reason why I think both you and I have keyed on a guy like John Gray is because he's on a team that is looking to make moves and he's only making $6 million next year. Similar thing to Clevenger. The Indians can't decide what they want to do. They Are they going to trade Lindor? Are they not? They traded Kluber for a very substandard package. So if they want to restock the farm system, then a guy like Clevenger, that's the guy to do it with. I mean, you're going to get a lot for Lindor, but he's also making $16 million next year, $17 million, whatever the number comes out to be. So that's going to be slightly prohibitive. But a guy like Clevenger, you can get three years that's worth trading prospects for, you know, a guy, and, and Lindor is too, but the Braves have a shortstop. And even it's not like Dansby last year was Dansby in 2017 or 28. Like he actually took, looked like he took some big steps forward. So it's only, it's an upgrade going Dansby to Lindor, but it's still a moderate upgrade and you're not filling some of the holes you need to fill. Braves need another starter in there. It's great that Sean Newcomb's going to get a chance to start. Best case scenario, he doesn't have a place in the rotation because they wind up getting a guy like a Clevenger. You put him with Soroka and Freed and Cole Hamels and hopefully good Fulty, that is a stacked top five. That's really, really good right there. So it would cost a lot. It would absolutely cost a lot. And that I think I would be as okay with trading prospects for Clevenger as I would for a lot of guys because he fills a, fills a big need at a minimal financial cost, and it still allows you, you don't have to choose between getting him and JD. So, once again, I say it once a week. I just talked a lot. Please say something. I really do like Mike Clevenger. He's actually a lot better than I had thought just thinking about the name. For whatever reason, I'd never really thought of him as uh, a number one type of pitcher because usually I always think of him as the number three guy in Cleveland uh, behind Kluber and Bauer. But if you look at Clevenger, he was a monster and he didn't, you know, he got hurt a little bit. And he only threw, I think he threw under 130 innings, uh, but his K rates up over 12, which is what I look for. His walk rate is under three, which is even better. He has three years of control. So the problem is if you want to call this a problem, if you're looking at getting Clevenger, you're going to say goodbye to Drew Waters. It's he. They're not going to take. They tragically undersold on Corey Kluber. They kind of undersold on Trevor Bauer. Um, they're not going to undersell on Mike Clevenger. If you hear the talks and you see what they've been asking the Dodgers for, they've been asking basically for the same package for Clevenger that they've been asking for Francisco Lindor. And I'm going to disagree with you, Doc. Um, Dansby to Lindor is not a moderate upgrade. It's a gigantic upgrade. Um, you're talking about going from an average shortstop to one of the top five or ten players in baseball. Um, Can I clarify my statement? Go ahead. It is, but it doesn't fill a hole. Okay. You have so you have a very I'll capable major league starting shortstop. Yes, right. Lindor's fantastic, and, and and I don't want you to think I'm trying to debate that. But no matter what, if you trade for Francisco Lindor, you still have to you do still have a third you, base. Still you still have, have to do yeah. something about the outfield. You still have a hole in, in the rotation if you trade for Francisco Lindor. Uh, and all the best starting pitching options are basically off the market. Alex Wood is about the only pitcher left on the market who's worth anything. Um, I would like to trade for Clevenger, but you, I don't see a way that you don't get Drew Waters. If they're wanting Gavin Lux and Dustin May from Los Angeles for Mike Clevenger, you're not getting out of that deal without trading one, maybe even two 
of Ian Anderson and Drew Waters. Say what you want. Gavin Lux is one of the highest prospects in baseball. He's a higher-rated prospect than Drew Waters. I believe he's a higher-rated prospect than Ian Anderson. I believe he's a higher-rated prospect than Christian Pache. I think yeah, Gavin I, I Lux think, is second or third. I think the last prospect rankings, Lux was like... Second or number, third, right? Yeah, like he's he's mega. Yeah, he he's... I know he's a top five prospect in all of Major League Baseball. So while the Dodgers have rightly said, nah, we don't want to give up Lux, uh, you're going to have to give up Waters. And I'm only saying... By the way, I'm saying Waters because I have been told that other teams are viewing Waters in a higher light than Pache, and the Braves view Pache higher than Waters. That's just what I'm hearing. Uh, I I happen to agree with that because I think that the Braves see both very often, uh, and I think the ceiling is higher for Pache. I think we can get into that another time when we talk prospects. Fact of the matter is, you guys can get mad at me for saying Drew Waters all you want, but I'm just going to go by what I think will be asked. I think... I think Cleveland would start with Drew Waters and work their way down from there. I think you'd have to see something like a Drew Waters, a Kyle Wright, uh, William Contreras, and you may have to see another one thrown in as well because you're going to have to make up the quantity. If they're looking at May and Lux, those are two top 100 guys. Uh, May, I think, was top 50, or he might have been like number 69. Nice. Um, it was nice. one of those two. But I know Lux was top five, so to make up the ground on that, you're going to have to give up quite a haul. Uh, would I do it? Yes, yeah, I think. Yeah, I would. I would. And it's not that I. It's not that I don't like Drew Waters. I think Drew Waters is going to be a star. I think he's going to be an absolute stud. Um, but I think it's easier to replace a corner outfielder than it is to get a number one. And while I'm not going to call Clevenger an ace because I think there are like four, maybe five aces in Major League Baseball, I think Clevenger would be the closest thing the Braves have had to an ace since Greg Maddox. Agreed. Definite agree. And like I said, Clevenger, Soroka, Freed. Wow. Yeah, that should be my other point to say. I don't want this to come off the wrong way, but I don't think Mike Soroka is an ace. Say that again? You don't think Mike Soroka is what? I don't think Mike Soroka is an ace. I'm sorry. I love Mike Mike Soroka. Right. I I don't think he profiles. I don't think that's his profile. Gives up too much contact for me to want to call him an ace. I'm sorry. I love Soroka. I just... I'll stop there. Please, please don't turn off the show. <laughs> we have so many questions left to get to. Why would you alienate somebody, everybody already? Okay, so thank you, Swaggy G, for your uh, for your question. Uh, we're going to move on to a question from Aaron Cohen, and I I love this one. And this kind of reminds me of something that that we wound up doing last year. So <laughs> you mean you mean the bet that I ended up losing? Oh well, no, not mm, maybe that's it. Partially. Well, we wound up doing kind of some over-unders and, and doing some projections for, for last year. Um, higher war in 2020. Ozzy Albies or Freddie Freeman? Careful. There is a right answer. There is a right answer, and the answer is Ozzy. Yes, that's correct. Ozzy's a better defender, and um, other podcasts, looking at you, Nakahoma, can get mad at me for saying this or try to uh, pull something over and think that you're getting me by saying, oh, I see compared defense for a first baseman. There's a reason why first baseman's wars are always under that of position players. It's because they're not as important. Uh, they have to hit better because their defense is literally David Ortiz played first base. Uh, if you ever saw David Ortiz try to catch a ball, that should tell you everything you need to know. Ozzy is a guy who was the third highest war on the team last year. I think this year he has a real shot to put up five 
maybe even six war. And I think he's, I think it's only a matter of time before we're talking about Ozzy in the same light that we were talking about Jose Altuve. Agreed. And, and Freddie, I think, I think could have a, a really, really good year this year. I mean, cause people are focused so much on his September and focus so much on his playoffs. He was elite level for that five months. Like by the way, as a for Freddie. So people don't think that I just hate Freddie Freeman. Last year was actually the worst year Freddie had had in like the past three years. He was coming off a 5.3 war season. He put up a four war season. That's a great season. His defense just took a step back. Freddie could, and he's going to be 30 years old, so he's, he's going to be getting older a little bit. But a four and a half war season for Freddie, I expect a four and a half, maybe even a five war season. I expect him to be the number one or two first baseman in baseball. Let I me mean, just get that out of the way. I just think that Ozzy is a more is a more well-rounded baseball player and more talented as a baseball player because he is faster. He doesn't have quite the same power, but he's going to hit 20 to 25 home runs. He's going to steal some more bases and he's going to play. Ozzy is the best defender on the team right now. Um, maybe you can argue with Ender, but it's between those two guys for who is the best defender. And that counts a lot, especially when you're talking about a team that has a rotation full of guys that give up contact. Well, and Ozzy's going to have more opportunities. He's going to have the opportunity to do more with his defense than Freddie does because he's going to have to be more rangy. Plus, he also is going to have the opportunity to run a lot more. So I think that once you pour those together, because the, the question is just who's going to have the higher war. Right, That's, and war is the counting stat. quantify that. Right, war's accounting stat. So this right. shouldn't be a shock to anybody. Right, and also, I mean, you can like Freddie and Ozzy together. You know, right, you can you can like them both. So, what about uh, you? Would just mention Ender. What about Ender and Ciarte versus Dansby Swanson? Who's got the higher war in twenty twenty? I'm gonna say Dansby, uh, and I think that it's most. I think it's gonna be pretty close. Um, Ender's offense when he came back up from injury. Looked very good. His swing looked really good. He was hitting the ball harder than he was before, and he wasn't rolling over to second base as often. Um, I do ultimately think his offense is going to keep him around a two war. I think Dansby can go two point. I think Dansby can go above two. All all it's going to take is for Dansby to stay healthy. And I know that Dansby hasn't done that. Trust me. If anybody knows, it's me that knows. Um, but <laughs> I, I think I think Dansby will put up at least a two and a half war season this year. I think that there's a, a clearer path to more playing time for Dansby than there is for Ender. Um, just because if they if they wind up calling up Pache or they wind up calling up Waters or you've got the... If Duvall winds up getting more playing time than just the platoon with Marcakis, depending on, depending on how things go, I think that Ender could be um, the third and a half outfielder. That's not a word, but it's kind of going to have to be. I think he's kind of the... He's kind of the odd man out, I think. He's the and, Ringo. And it, He's the Ringo. Yeah, yeah, basically. Ender and Ciarte is Ringo. Think about how bad the Beatles would have been if Ender and Ciarte was the drummer. Um, I think that Dansby continues to build off of, off of what he did in the first half of the season. The heel obviously bothered him a lot uh, once he came back from injury. Uh, if Ender is able to hit in the first half like he did in the second half, which he still hasn't really been able to figure out, for an entire season outside of uh, outside of 2017, then I think that you're looking at a, a very different conversation about what the Braves' outfield looks like. But it's going to take some time of seeing who's going to get in there and who's going to do what. Um, I, I'm going to go with Dansby on this one as well. I think I think that's a good one. How about uh, God? I love this question. 
Ronald Acuna versus Juan Soto. I love this question for a couple different reasons. One, I love that Acuna and Soto are going to be compared to each other for years on end. I think baseball is in a phenomenal place when you can talk about Acuna and Soto because they are in the same division. They're friends, but it's a good rivalry between the Nationals and the Braves. I'm going to pick Acuna strictly because of his defense. Uh, Juan Soto is a better offensive player than Ronald Acuna as far as his batter's eye and things like that. But, but, and I say this heavily, but... Ronald Acuna can do more things offensively than Juan Soto can. Juan Soto can hit 30-plus homers. He can have 100-and-something RBIs. He's going to carry an OBP near or above 400. That's just what he's going to do. That's how good he is at recognizing pitches. But Acuna can hit the same amount or more of homers, can drive in the same amount of runs, can steal 40 bags, and he does it from the leadoff spot, which he's going to be in the leadoff spot. He does it in the leadoff spot, and he... Acuna is the spark to the team. Whatever you feel about his antics, there's a right answer there. Whatever you feel about his antics, Acuna is the driving force for this Braves team. He's the guy, plus you throw in the fact that if he's going to have a whole season in right field, instead of being 5.6 war, if Acuna plays all, all season in right field, I think you see Acuna not just put up above what he did last year. I think you see Acuna hit 7.5 to 8 war. Oh, we get that guy for the next decade. Isn't that fun? And um, he never makes more than $17 million. Mm-hmm. It's The argument here is actually, uh, it's not dissimilar to the Freddie versus Ozzy argument, um, with Freddie being the Soto and Ozzy being, uh, being the Acuna. Defensively, Acuna absolutely gets, gets the edge. Um, but offensively, I think Soto is, he is a better hitter than Acuna is. And Acuna is a good hitter. Soto's like Acuna's a great hitter. Soto's just Soto. Soto has a Miguel Cabrera type offensive game, and that's not something that I throw around lightly. He kind of reminds me of Vlad Guerrero Senior. a little bit. Uh, I'm going to disagree. I've never seen Juan Soto swing at something that bounced in the dirt. But he would. <laughs> just because you haven't seen him do it doesn't mean he won't. I haven't swing at something over. I haven't seen him swing at something over his head either. I would say Acuna is a lot more like Vlad Senior. Because Acuna hits balls out that are not on the plate. Like, if you throw the ball two baseballs width off the plate, you assume that that guy is either going to take the pitch or he's going to hit it off the end of the bat and ground it to you or the first baseman. Acuna takes that pitch regularly, takes it dead center field 435 plus. Well, he hit one off of his uh, off his knee it's, opposite it's, field. It's the most astounding thing I've seen since Vlad. Like, it's like Vlad, I'll never forget Vlad hitting a single that literally bounced like five feet in front of the plate and hit it off the bounce into the outfield. I'll never, mm-hmm. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget Vlad Guerrero hitting a home run on a pitch out from his knees, from his nose to his toes. That's where Vlad goes. I'm going to take uh, Acuna on this one uh, as well for, for very similar reasons to one now, you were saying. In the interest, but I think of, <laughs> it's going to be close. In the interest of time, we do got to move on. Um, Soroka versus Freed. This is a great question too. Um, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say Soroka this year. Ask me again in 2021, and I'm gonna give you a different answer. I think Max Freed is the best bet the Braves have, aside from maybe Ian Anderson. I think Max Freed is the best bet the Braves have for an in-house ace for any of these young guys coming up. I think Max Freed has the best stuff. I have he. I think he has the best mixture of stuff, velocity, and command. I think he's going to end up being the best pitcher of the bunch. I think Soroka 
is a phenomenal pitcher. I think he's always going to be the steadiest pitcher, and I think he's always going to have the best command. I just don't think Soroka Soroka lacks the pure strikeout stuff that Max Fried has. And that, I think, is ultimately going to be the difference. I think working with Cole Hamels is going to be phenomenal for both of them, but really for Max Fried even more. Because if Hamels can teach Fried to control his changeup more, and that becomes another weapon for Fried, Fried will routinely put up four and a half, five and a half, six type more seasons as a starting pitcher, health, health notwithstanding. But 2020... I think Soroka will have the better year because I think Soroka will still be more consistent. Max has still not been a starter in the big leagues for uh, a real extended amount of time. Uh, you guys know I love Max Fried, but 2020, I'll go with Soroka. I'm going to go with Soroka too because uh, I think he's going to give up less home runs than uh, than Freed will. But I, I do kind of agree, and and I know that if anybody who, uh, when I had said that I don't think Mike Soroka is an ace, anybody uh, who is still listening... Um, this this is not to say that Mike Soroka is not spectacular. He's just, he's not there yet. I mean, and, and that throwing around the word ace, you got to be careful because a lot of people just assume every team has one. Every, every team's number one is going to be an ace. That's not the case. No, no. Like right now in Major League Baseball, I came up with four pitchers that I think are aces. Uh, yeah, and, and Jacob, even that, I mean, that's Jacob like, DeGrom, Max Scherzer, Garrett Cole, Justin Verlander. Those are the four. If Chris Sale's healthy, I could be convinced that he's one too. But those four are the only ones. A lot of these other guys, they got to prove it to me that they can do it again. Because it's not about it's not about having an ace season. Lance Lynn had an ace season. Go look at Lance Lynn's fangraphs. He had over six war. You have to be able to sustain it for multiple years, multiple years in a row. Uh, that's why right. those four are the only four that I say right now today on January what January 9th. Those are the only four aces in baseball. Right. Soroka could become an ace. Freed could become an ace. But as for now, they're not. They're not there. No. I think that um, they will be. Uh, they will be closer in Soroka and Freed will be closer in WAR uh, this year and peripherals than they were in 2019. But I still think Soroka has the edge. And uh, last question before we, we move on uh, to the next one: uh, Which rookie ends up with the highest WAR this year? This one is very interesting because I don't think any rookie is going to have. I don't think any of the rookies are going to have a gigantic impact this year. Um, but that being said, this really is tough. Um, I think I'll go. I think I'm going to go Bryce Wilson. Now, if Bryce Wilson, I'm going to say Bryce Wilson, but if Bryce Wilson ends up getting dealt in a package for like, say a Chris Bryant, uh, I think, I think in that case it would be, it's either going to be Bryce Wilson or Kyle Wright. That's going to be my two picks. I know if Pache comes up at midseason, like if the Braves need Pache up, Pache will win the war battle just because he'll be a, an everyday center fielder because um, they're not going to burn an option year if he's not going to start every day. But if Pache does not start and he only comes up as like a September call-up, I think it'll be one of Bryce Wilson or Kyle Wright, whoever wins that fifth starter battle. I actually, I'm going to take friend of the program, Patrick Weigel. That's a full sentimental reason. Absolutely. I don't have to explain myself. <laughs> That's sucking up. No, I mean, I, th- I think that he, um, I think that he will have an opportunity to pitch in the bullpen. Uh, whether or not he makes the most of it, <clears throat> that is still up for debate. But I have all the faith in the world 
that he is going to uh, show up and dominate. He's got that TPS chip on his shoulder. So, uh, you know, we will ride to the top together. It's cool. <laughs> All right, but <laughs> move, moving on from that, because we're rapidly running out of time this segment. God, did we do it again? Did we talk too much again? <laughs> we sure did. Uh, this is from Roy Screen at IV the fourth. Assuming Pache gets a midseason call-up and produces, what kind of trade value would Ender carry? Assuming roughly similar production to career averages, or would the Braves play both Pache and Ender just to have the best defensive outfield in baseball? Uh, first things first, they will not play Pache and Ender in the same outfield because they both play center field. Uh, they are not going to call Pache up just to play in a corner. If they're going to call anybody, if they need a corner, Drew Waters will get the call-up before Christian Pache. Um, as to what kind of trade value Ender has, it's going to depend on what team. A team like Kansas City, Ender will have a lot more value because, or a team like Colorado because they have big, gigantic outfields and they don't have good fielding corner outfielders. So a guy like Ender, who's not going to give you a lot offensively, if he gives you 82 to 80, 82 to 92 weighted runs created plus, you'll take it, even though it's below average offense with his defense and he's as long as he hasn't hit that that cliff yet, uh, his defense will be more valuable to teams like Kansas City, uh, teams like San Diego, even if Manuel Margot can't take a step forward offensively, teams with big, gigantic parks. The idea of Ender playing in Colorado is really interesting. I swear he'd show up and he'd hit like 40 triples uh, if he was out there. He's not as fast as he used to be, but I, I think he would actually really thrive there. You know, and this comes from, you know, if if this is all based on a trade happening in the middle of the season. This goes back to what we were talking about with his inability to put together like a full season. He's always amazing in the second half and he's always pretty bad in the first half. If he can figure out a way to at least just keep his head above water, he doesn't even have to be amazing. He just has to be good enough because he's getting to the part of his contract where he's starting to get a little bit more expensive. He's making seven, eight, nine million dollars a year now before he was making a lot less. So, I don't think he's going to bring back like a top hundred guy, and I don't know if he's he's necessarily the type of guy that you trade as like a centerpiece of a deal. But I could see him winding up somewhere else uh, later next year for for a solid but but uh, unspectacular piece. I agree. I think he could be a glue guy in a package. There you go, a hey, glue guy. I like that. Okay, so. Moving on, we had, I think, God, four questions from uh, Elon Brave. That's at Seth Sozaby. But here's the one we're going to roll with. With the outfield as currently constructed, what's the over-under on at-bats for Nick Markakis in 2020? If I set the over-under at 400, you going over-under? I'm going to push. I think that's that's pretty much exactly it. I think as long as he doesn't get hurt, then I think that's exactly it. I think he'll get more starts than Duvall just because there are not a lot of lefties in the National League. Um, I think if you can keep him, ideally you want to keep him around 130 to 135 games. You don't want him playing any more than that because he's old and his knees are gone. Ideally, I want somebody else to take that job and and push Nick to the fourth outfield spot. Um, But I I think 400 at-bats is where I'm going to set that line. Make sure that we mark this and uh, we'll revisit this after the season next year. Ooh, man, somebody, somebody's going to record that and play it that's back a, to us at the end That's of a year. vault. That's a vault question, everybody. Make sure you mark that down. Yeah, Seth, Seth is a regular listener of ours. So, um, yeah, let's, let's, um, 
Tag us in September when you bring that up, Seth. All right, here's one from uh, from friend of the program, Jacob Suttles. Jacob, one of our favorite guys, at Jacob Suttles1. Realistically, what are your expectations for Kyle Wright and Ian Anderson, and when do they make and stick on the MLB roster? This is a good question, too. That is a good one. All right, I'll do Ian first. I think it's... In the same way that we're talking about, you can't really project aces. It's hard to even really project number ones. Like when guys are dropping, um, that when are projecting prospects, then they often will say they'll top out at like a two or a three. It's very, very rare for for anybody to give like top of scale grades for anything. Like when you see somebody who's got like eighty grade speed, you should respect that because they don't go giving that out to anybody. So even knowing that Anderson is legitimately one of the best shots this organization has at having um, having an in-house number one, at least as far as prospects go, because like you were just talking about with Max Fried, you still have to just assume the best case scenario, he's going to wind up being like a two or a three. I mean, it's entirely possible that he winds up just becoming like a four or five. But I think, I think when you're looking at a guy like Ian, it's 2021 before he realistically sticks long-term. I think he could see some time this year. I think he could get a spot start here or there, but I don't see him being like a, a massive anchor. And I can see him being a pretty solid 175 innings a year guy who's going to give you ERA and FIP both in the three to three and a half range, uh, strike out around 10 per nine, and uh, hopefully not walk the farm. He hasn't really um, struggled uh, as much recently um, with the free passes as he did um, I say that I, I kind of want to go back and cross-reference that. I feel like maybe he did struggle with it a little bit in AAA. So um, I think solid major leaguer for him. For Kyle Wright, after what I saw from him at the end of last year, uh, the reliever version of Kyle Wright is very intriguing. That slider was sharp. It was really, really good looking. And if he winds up becoming a back end of the bullpen piece, I think that that gives him a better chance to... Um, to stay in the bigs than as a starter because he he hasn't he just hasn't been able to put it together yet. But I think that some point next year he does wind up becoming a mainstay uh, on the big league roster because honestly you can't really keep him in AAA for too much longer. Yeah, Ian Anderson by the way in AAA had six and a half over six and a half walks per nine. But that's that's in five starts though, so that's twenty four innings. So that's not really a great sample size. Um, in theme huh. with you, starting with Ian. I think the thing with Ian is going to be the home run. Now, he's he's not ever had really horrible home run rates until Gwinnett, which I said was only 24 innings, and he had almost two homers per nine. The problem with Ian, uh, or at least as it pertains to projecting him long-term, is his spin rates are not good. And while spin rates are not always the, the end-all, be-all, low spin rates do equate to higher home run totals because there's less spin on the ball. So when you hit it with the bat, the backspin you create is not is not going against the backspin created by the pitcher. So it's you're going to get more backspin off of Ian Anderson-type pitches. And that's not a death knell. There's a lot of pitchers that are great pitchers that give up a ton of home runs. Justin Verlander, for example, uh, he's one of the most home run-prone pitchers in baseball at this point. He gives up a ton of home runs. Uh, but his other pitches are so good that he limits the damage. Most of his are solo type shots. Like last season, Justin Verlander gave up 16% home runs on fly balls. He gave up 
almost one and a half homers per nine. Uh, as far as the overall number, I don't have it in front of me. I sh- Dang it, I should have had that right in front of me. But Justin Verlander, you, you get my point. He gives up a ton of home runs. As a matter of fact, just looking at his, his 2019, uh, he gave up 36 home runs in 2019. That's, for, for just for, uh, for notes, that's more than Julio Tehran gave up in 2018 when we all thought that he was just the most homer-prone pitcher alive. It's more than Madison Bumgarner gave up, who, as you guys all know by this point, I think is too home run prone. So that's I, I agree with you, though. I think Ian is not a guy that you want to rush through AAA. Uh, he didn't come up and dominate it. He showed that he kind of needed to be there. He's got some stuff to work on. Uh, I think it's 2021 before you see him really get involved. There are no September call-ups in 2020. I believe that's done away with this season. Uh, I think it's August for call-ups, and if you don't call him up, by August, you can't call him up again. So I'm actually not. I think I don't know if he's going to get a lot of starts this year. I don't think he's a guy that the Braves want to call up just to get a start or two and waste an option. I don't. I don't know. It, I guess it all depends on how tight the division is at the time when it is. Uh, as of Kyle Wright, I like what you're thinking as far as him in the bullpen. It allows him to use his two best pitches more often, which is his four seam and his slider. His curveball when it's on is really, really good. His two seam when it's on is really good as well. But the slider is his out pitch. The fastball is something that he can run up to 95, 96, 97. And there are still legitimate questions from when he came out of Vanderbilt about whether he would be a starter or a reliever because his stamina has always been a little bit of a problem. And he doesn't carry the same movement on his pitches late into his outings. And if you watch him at Gwinnett, You'll see the same thing. Now, he can struggle with command at times, too. I think the thing with Kyle Wright is, even though he's a college guy, even though he's a little bit older coming out, he had more to work on than most college pitchers who were taken that high in the draft. He had more. He has more upside than most of those college arms as well, but he's almost more like a high school arm that got taken out of college. So I think for I think for Kyle Wright to make the roster, I think for Kyle Wright to really make the roster with any hope of really sticking... Bryce would have to have been traded. Uh, but I, I like your idea. If Wright's going to really stick on the roster, I think it's going to be as a reliever for this year, for 2020. Right. Yeah. And, and he's still just 24. He's going to spend all of next season being 24 years old. And you look at guys like Acuna and Soto and all these mega young guys that 24 can actually kind of seem like old as far as prospects go. It's still totally respectable to figure it out. 24-25 and be a force, you know, so don't give up on him yet. I, I see people all the time saying, you know, Kyle Wright's a nothing. He's, you know, the ship has passed. Oh, come on. You know, there's still a long way to go there. So great question. Thank you very much for, for that, uh, Jacob. Next question, Doc. This is probably your favorite question on here from our buddy Sam Dawkins at Sam J. Dawkins. If you could put one fictional baseball player on your team for next year, who would it be? Sam, by the way, says Henry Rowengartner. Great, great call on Henry Rowengartner. I wonder if, uh, thank you, Sam, for the question. I wonder if uh, if he hadn't pointed out that that's who he would have chosen, if that's who I would have chosen. But uh, I probably thought about this a lot more than I should. And I'm going to go with Steve Nebraska from The Scout. Have you ever seen The Scout? I have not. It's been a long time since since I've seen it. It's Brendan Fraser who basically it's um, it's a kid who is playing, I think, in like the Mexican leagues or something, who he's basically like Babe Ruth Shoei Otani. He's a two-way guy who pitches over 100, and he's got like a 
a literal thousand batting average and he also has like crippling social anxiety and you know it's just this big old thing and then I don't want to give away the end of the movie but he shows up and he <laughs> he throws an immaculate game in the world in game one of the World Series uh, 27 strikeouts on 81 pitches and he hits two solo home runs so if I could get that dude on my team yeah that would be just fine for me so, I got I got a guy is it Ricky the wild thing Vaughn no. Kenny Powers. Is it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Kenny Powers. That's or, oh yeah. Or Damn it, that's good. <laughs> or Pablo from Backyard Baseball. Oh my god, man. Come on. You know, I didn't even consider that. I would consider bringing in like uh Paste or Bay from from the Jersey team on Bases Loaded cuz that was I man, I didn't even consider that that as a resource. I mean, I'm just I'm the creative one, I guess. How did that, when did that happen? Always. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, we, again, we went so long. We got one more question. We wanted to say this one for last because uh, this is, this very much could be an extra innings question. Uh, this is from our buddy Joshua Lemon at Joshua underscore Lemon 14. If you're being tortured by music, which band could you last longer being forced to listen to? Creed or Nickelback? And I'm, I'm not actually- sure. I'm not yeah, sure I'm gonna, I've ever faced a tougher question. I thought I had my answer, and then I made the mistake of thinking about it. I, I'm going to reuse this. This is going to become the new Boondock Saints question. <laughs> um, I, I think I could last longer listening to Nickelback. I think. Just because I have a special special hatred for Scott Stapp. I really, really <laughs> just hate him. I hate him so very much. And and I don't have anything against any single person in Nickelback. It's just the general idea of them. So I think I think Nickelback. But if you said Creed, I mean, who am I to argue? It, the whole the whole point is torture. It's such a tough question. I do have a special hate for Creed because Alter Bridge with Miles Kennedy is about twenty thousand times better than Creed could ever dream of being. Like just because Miles Kennedy is about fifty thousand times better than Scott Stapp at everything, mm-hmm. agreed. But Nickelback, I th- I right. think I'd have to take Creed because as much as I don't like Scott Stapp, there are a couple of their songs I can listen to and not want to change the channel. Be like, eh, okay, I can deal with this. There are no Nickelback songs that I can that I can <laughs> listen to and not think. What is this garbage? Like <laughs> Nickelback or Imagine Dragons are like the two worst bands of all time to me. Or Coldplay. Like either one of those three, I, I could not tell you which of those three I hate more. I hate I hate all of them more than I hate the Florida Gators, the New York Yankees, and the St. Louis Cardinals combined. Well, I don't need to pour cold water on your answer. I've seen Coldplay live twice. Uh it's been a long time, mind you. Actually, I really liked them a lot once upon a time. I get not liking them now. Um, when I saw them the first time, Elton John actually came out with them. Coldplay very- is the most vanilla band of all time. Yes, that's absolutely true. That's I will not dispute that statement whatsoever. I mean, it's derivative of U2, and it's derivative of Radiohead. And see, but I don't I like U2 either. Like, I hate U2. So imagine what I feel about Coldplay if I hate the band that they basically tried to copy. Yeah, and you're not a huge Radiohead fan either, are you? No, I like Creep, and that's about it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm huge, a creep. 
So we t- so your answer would probably be uh, neither. You you would be tortured by Coldplay. How many songs do you really think, or how many times could you sit through hearing "Yellow" in a row? Oh, I don't it's know. It's a if good I could... song, man. It's the perfect pop song. It is perfectly constructed. I don't know if I could make it through two, two or three. Like, well, what's on the line here? Because I might just like chew my own tongue off and like drown on the blood. Well, hmm. I mean, wouldn't you just go ahead and take that as an easy out if you were forced to listen to any of them? Oh, no, because like, I'd have to be really up against it to take that way out. Fair enough. Like, if I'm strapped down and it's like stuck, it's playing at like a crazy like, like here, here's my scenario when I think of this. I think of it as me being strapped down on like a gurney, like a like a surgical table or an autopsy table and somebody playing any of those bands at like you know when you're you know in your car where you turn your volume up to 50 or whatever and it sounds like you're you're going to blow your eardrums out. Mm-hmm. That's how loud I picture this being played. It's like where I can't just plug up my ears and ignore it. Like so loud that it's reverberating and it's so loud I can't think of anything else. Like that's all that's playing. Um, I might have gone a little too deep in describing the torture there, but that's how I feel. Probably a pretty good place to leave off then. Nickelback is my final answer. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Nickelback is the worst. That's the one I don't want to listen to. I I can deal with at least two or three Creed songs. So I'll make it through more Creed songs than I will... Uh, I'll make it through more Creed songs that I will nickel back just because there's two or three that I can actually stand listening to. Well, one final thing. As it pertains to Coldplay, I know you hate them. I'm telling you, man, the new song of Feel Cootie, it's really good. It sounds nothing like Coldplay. You'd probably like it. I mean, I'll take your word on it, and I still will never listen to it. Don't worry. I'm going to subject you to this one of these days. It will be very <laughs> sneaky. It'd be one of those that you'll just put, you'll just throw it next time you're editing a, a, a show. You'll just throw that into our, our episode. I'm going to make a quick note of that. That's a pretty good <laughs> idea, actually. Diabolical genius. But on that note, this segment has also ended up running just as long as the first one. So to those of you that made it all the way through, thank you guys so much. You're such troopers. We really do appreciate everything that y'all do. We love listening and interacting with y'all. So Hopefully we get some JD news here in the next week or two, and we'll have something big to come at you with next week. If not, never fear. We'll be with you through it all. Thank you, guys, and we'll be back next week right here on the Platinum Sombrero. Thanks, bye.